0: Welcome, everyone, uh, to this uh, edition of Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup. Uh, we started this probably about four four or five months ago, and we've been getting pretty solid turnout in the Zoom calls. And, you know, obviously, we have Facebook Live as well. And so it's really been great to see the engagement. And I mean, I'm just really excited to host uh, Barry uh, today. He's uh, a broker at Marcus Millchap in uh, Florida, I want to say, right, Tampa?
1: Yeah, based in South Florida. South
0: Florida. So yeah, yeah, yeah. he's based in South Florida. And I mean, he does a ton of deals in, in triple net investing uh, properties, and so I thought he, it'd be great for you to come by and talk to us about the 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 the, the space. Um, yeah, no, happy oh.
1: happy to. It's a fun, uh, interesting area to to be in, and we get to do it nationally. So, no, I hope I can you know, shed a little bit of insights for you guys.
0: Definitely, man. I really appreciate you stopping by. Really. Sure.
1: Um, oh, thank you. So. Generally speaking, when we
0: first start these meetings, we like to ask a little bit about the background of the person that, that we're interviewing. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, maybe how you started out, and then what got you into, yeah. I guess, your space?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I was actually I was a former practicing attorney. Uh, I went to went to law school, obviously. I graduated in '93, and was um, an attorney till 2001. Uh, for about five years or so in private practice, worked with a bunch of, I always tell people this kind of dates me, but worked with uh, developers both for Walmart and Kmart, which back then they were kind of neck and neck, (laughs) Kmart and Walmart. Uh, You know, it's been a pretty clear winner since then. I mean, Kmart's blown away. Walmart, who's, you know, kind of on the verge of bankruptcy now, Uh, just getting there. (laughs) Um, So, um, obviously, Kmart's, you know, yeah, I wasn't at a Kmart like about a year ago for the last, you know, probably the last time of my life. Um, they also worked with a number of um, restaurant chains, even though we were a small firm. Worked with Ruby Tuesday Restaurants, Longhorn Steakhouse, and a bunch of those chains. And then went in house for a couple of years with uh, Aaron's Inc., uh, who's a publicly traded retailer based in the Atlanta area. And then two thousand one made the switch to um, the brokerage area and been doing that for you know, approaching almost twenty years now. That's
0: awesome. I read the book uh, as a made in America uh, where they talk about the competition. Well, it's Sam Walton. He talks about the competition between Kmart and Walmart. And and at one point, uh, Kmart was the behemoth.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, well, Kmart obviously predated Walmart. So, I mean, at one point they were, I mean, Sears and Kmart were the equivalent of Walmart and Amazon today in reality. So now, I mean, just Kmart failed to adapt and Sears too and evolve and, you know, Walmart and Mr. Walton... Yeah, kind of smushed them to the ground and you know there's still a few a few k-marts out there but you know totally you know basically totally irrelevant nowadays and are done
0: oh yeah and and I, I remember reading this and and i saw it on the youtube video but the ceo of walmart uh, mcmillan Mac, Mac, i think was, i can't remember his, his exact name but he has a screensaver that shows the top retailers at the time for each decade yeah and it showed just just to give just to make sure he doesn't get yeah. complacent because it can go away in an instant. You could be as big as Sears one decade and then the next decade you're.
1: Oh, it's staggering. I mean, it, it's an interesting, I, I've seen that same where you see it over the decades, over let's say the last 100 years or 60, 70, 80 years. And it's staggering. I mean, even you see that like the Dow 30 or any of those. And very few companies have lasted over 50 years, much less 100 years. And I've heard, you know, Jeff Bezos talks about that. You know, one day, you know, we're, we're battling to, to avoid extinction that one day we'll be at risk of that. And, you know, and they will be, I mean, I, you know, it's not anytime soon. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Walmart and Amazon and Target, they all have to evolve or, you know, one day, you know, they will be the next Sears or Kmart otherwise. I mean, you know, again, those were, those were the behemoths. I mean, the, you know, Sears was the, Amazon of retail before it was Amazon. I mean they you know back in the early 1900s and 1920s they changed the entire retail world and upended it just like Amazon's doing today. Uh they just didn't evolve over that that period and are now you know on the verge of you know extinction. Definitely. No, yeah. It's definitely an interesting uh concept for sure. But, oh yeah.
0: Yeah. But So now we know a little bit about yourself, uh, can you explain a little bit uh, from this concept, what what exactly is triple net? Uh, Because that's something I've definitely gotten a question on before. So as we're talking about triple net investing, what exactly does that mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess what you're referring to is probably the single tenant aspect of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's obviously in shopping centers, you have triple net leases, which are basically where the tenant just pays everything. Uh, but you still have to manage it. You've got to run the property because it's multi-tenant. What we're probably more talking to are these single-tenant properties, kind of the mailbox money, passive income type deals, where if it's truly triple net, what that refers to is the tenant pays the taxes, they pay the insurance, they maintain the building, that the landlord does nothing. Um, you know, pre-COVID, I used to say you you just sit on a beach, be on a cruise ship, and yeah, you know, the money just shows up in your account the first of every month. We'll be we'll be back to that day eventually again, hopefully sometime you know, in the foreseeable future. But it, it's kind of that again, it's that mailbox money where you've got this tenant. They maintain the property. They pay the taxes. They pay the insurance. If there's a roof leak, they don't call you and say, you know, can you fix that? Uh, they do it and you just get a rent check that shows up every month. So that's it's kind of that perfect world where you own the real estate, but you just you don't have to do a thing with it
0: definitely no and and i guess one thing that i'll ask is why would anyone want to do that why would businesses feel the need to to do that i think well, that's, from that's a tenant standpoint from yeah from the tenant standpoint because they, why would you why i guess why would you sign a lease to, to for you to be responsible for everything about the building and you don't own the building
1: well i mean part it's going to be taken into account in the rentals rate certainly so it's not you know that's that's certainly part of it so there's really positives and in, in a lot of ways from a tenant standpoint if i'm a tenant I probably would say, you know, I kind of want to control everything. If there's one, if there's a roof leak, I don't want to be calling my landlord saying, can you come fix the roof? And maybe they take a month or six weeks. And meanwhile, I've got a leak, you know, leak in my roof and my bill, you know, I'm having damage to inventory. So I think I'd actually rather just control that entire process. Uh, and again, that's going to all be taken account in the lease and then the rental race. If it was, you know, triple net, let's say it's a $20 rent, but if it was, not triple net where the, you know, the landlord's taking of everything, the the tenant's gonna probably have to pay a little bit higher rental rate. So it kind of goes out in the wash. Um, You know, I'd say also the risk from a tenant standpoint is you're kind of running the risk. Well, if insurance rates go up, depending where the property is located, the real estate taxes could go up over time, certainly upon a sale. So you've kind of got that involved too. But as far as just controlling the property, I think it's mutually beneficial that Again, I think if I'm a tenant, I just as well control that. And from a landlord standpoint, I probably very much like the idea that I just don't have to do anything.
0: Definitely. And and also ask, and this is more related to the business side of things, I would imagine return on equity would probably be higher from a business standpoint. Instead of buying my own building and maybe getting a return of whatever on it, I could reinvest that money in inventory or whatever else. And I'm assuming at that point, your return on equity is probably going to be higher, uh, by utilizing that money instead of putting it into a building that may get you a certain small amount of percentage increase over time versus using that money to buy more inventory, expand operations and grow. I feel like maybe that's, is that a benefit for the tenant? That
1: that is where you see, I mean, most retailers do not own the real estate. There are, there are some exceptions. I mean, McDonald's is the most famous of those that, you know, it's the old McDonald's model where they do own a lot of their real estate. And that started, early on with Ray Crock, Chick-fil-A owns a fair amount of their real estate. Walmart, we were talking about before, they own a lot of their real estate. Uh, Publix is a grocer that owns a lot of their real estate. Uh, but what you, you know, what's kind of unique to all of those brands is they're all really big and, and really wealthy for lack of a better way, to, better way to put it. I mean, they're all sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more in cash. So they've got access to tremendous capital. So they're able to afford that and take that lower return on the real estate to long-term just own and control the real estate. Whereas you're right, I mean, most franchisees, most brands that are growing, it's owning real estate is extremely capital intensive. Uh, I mean, if you're buying a $2 million property, at one extreme, if you're buying it all cash, it obviously costs $2 million. If you're leveraging it, you're still probably looking at $500,000 to $1 million to put into each individual location. So if you're talking about buying or owning hundreds or you know, maybe even more locations, it takes a tremendous capital outlay that you're right, generally the return on that investment is gonna be lower than if you put that hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars into growing and adding more units, expanding your inventory, or you know, again, even more so just expanding your store count. Uh, you, know, you might get a 15, 18% give or take return on investment in the business, whereas in the real estate, you're four, five, six—you know, if you're leveraged, maybe seven, eight percent return. Uh, so generally speaking, unless you're a very cash-rich company, you're going to get a much bigger return in just growing the business itself than expanding and owning the real estate.
0: Definitely, yeah, that makes sense. No, I, I always—I always get that question, so it's kind of interesting. Well, actually, always, but I've definitely gotten that question before, and and that's kind of the explanation that I've that I've heard before.
1: Yeah, I mean in some brands that you know they just look to expand more slowly. I mean, I know some franchisees that they like owning the real estate, but they're smaller and they don't mind having it take longer to grow. Uh, if you, if you're outlaying the, the the capital into the real estate, you're probably not going to be able to add units as quickly. So you maybe you're not looking to go from 8 units to 30 units in a couple of years. You're okay going from eight to nine, one year, maybe I go to 10 or 11 over the next couple of years, you're just, just a different model. And it's probably, it's a, it's a more entrepreneurial model where you know, the goal is let me just accumulate and own the real estate. And at some point my exit strategy as the franchisee, I'm gonna sell the business and own the real estate. And now I've got, again, that's exactly what we're talking about. I've got the passive cash flow of uh, being a landlord in the real estate, my tenants gonna pay me rent. Uh, so it's, I, I would never sit here and tell somebody who's a franchisee that, or an operator says, we want to own the real estate. That's great. I mean, if you've got the capital and the financial wherewithal to do that and you know, grow at whatever pace you're looking to grow, fantastic. That's a great, great model. I mean, again, Ray Kroc proved decades ago that was a phenomenal model to follow, that long term you can build fantastic wealth, but it's, it's a very long term and slow play uh, but for the right people with that mindset, that can be fantastic. It's just, it's not the way most franchisees are looking to grow where they want to add more units and do it a little bit more quickly.
0: Definitely. No, no. Thanks. Thanks for providing that insight. Really.
1: Cool. So from a single tenant Net
0: lease perspective. Uh, generally, what you'd see is 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 a rating system, right? Uh, right. It's generally either the Moody's or S&P 500, I guess. Uh, and you can clarify a lot of this right now. But what what exactly does that mean? What does the rating system mean, and, and how is it factored in uh, to the Yeah, the price?
1: you don't. I mean, again, on the a lot of these single tenant deals are franchise operated, so that Moody's, Standard and Poor's don't typically, if I'm not aware of any, that they rank rate as far as the franchisee. So it's usually public companies and then if they don't have any debt, they still might not be rated. I think it's really very overstated as far as any importance personally. I believe as far as those credit ratings, I mean, I, yeah, you get, you know, some folks will say I wanna buy investment grade credit. Um, I get it, I just, I'm not gonna dismiss it as being absolutely unimportant or irrelevant. I just feel like personally, I would put that fairly far down the list of criteria that I think is overly important. Uh, when evaluating a property. So again, yeah, okay, they're, they're investment grade. Does that mean it's a great property to buy? Not necessarily. There's to me, there's other aspects more important than having an a credit, you know, an investment grade credit rated company. Cause you may, you know, great, you've got an investment grade rated company, but maybe the real estate's lousy or the rent's too high. So it just yep. if you focus too much on that, I think you're missing what to me are probably more important components of a, a, a good real estate transaction.
0: Sure. So I guess on the sales side, let's say, does, does the rating affect the, the value or the, or the, what they're, they're requesting. So for example, if you're, if you're Starbucks or, I mean, I don't know, I, and you can tell me a little bit more, but let's say that I am a very reputable business that's occupying the space. They sign a 20 year lease, their investment grade, quote unquote, in yeah. the rating, is that going to positively, I'm assuming it's going to positively affect the value, right? Yeah.
1: It is, yeah, correct. I mean, the stronger the tenant, the stronger their perceived credit or their actual credit, the lower the cap rates typically going to be. I mean, it's a you know, it's a risk reward thing. So the the higher the risk that you know the consumers or the investors view, the higher the risk, the the higher the return they're going to look for. So correct. If you've got a you know really strong credit rating, a Sherwin Williams, a McDonald's, Starbucks, like you say, you know those are going to be lower cap rates than a you know small franchisee or you know, Kmart is an example we were talking about. If you can go buy a single tenant Kmart deal, that's going to be considered very high risk, you know, lousy credit rating, and you're going to be a much higher cap rate. And that's going to realistically be more of a real estate play. So no, exactly. The the better the credit, the lower the the, the yield the buyer is going to be able to get, and the lower the return. So it, it is a component aspect of it, certainly. Definitely. Awesome. So now that we kind of understand a high level overview of what single tenant
0: at least investments are and, and kind of how the ratings are concerned. What are some of the pros and cons of investing in these types of deals?
1: Yeah, I'd say the pro is, I mean, I guess the pro and the con is they're single tenant. So there's really very little to do. There's not, you know, if it's truly triple net, there's really nothing to do other than collect the rent every month is just totally passive. At the same time, the other side of that, the negative you could argue is I got one tenant. So you're either you're either 100% occupied and everything's great. You can sit on the beach, or you're 100% vacant. Uh, whereas if you've got a multi-tenant shopping center, or I know you said you sell uh, apartment buildings as well. You know, let's say you got a 100-unit apartment building, and you know you got six vacancies. Okay, I'm 94% occupied. I'm still probably covering my expenses. I'm covering debt service. I'm cash flowing. Um, you know, that's different than you know. The equivalent would be if you have a single-family house that you are in out. You're either 100% occupied or 100% vacant. There's no there's no in between. When things are good, they're good. When they're when they are vacant, they're they're a little bit more concerning, maybe. Uh, so I'd say that's the, the, the biggest negative is just and you know, I think a buyer, you need to, I think the astute buyers keep that in mind is, you know, what am I going to do if my tenant vacates? And, you know, the best buyers I work with, they're always when they buy a deal, their thought process is who's my next tenant going to be? Because you know, some owners, if you own the property generationally, or if you're looking to hold it 10, 20, 30, 40 years, in some instances, mm-hmm. there's probably going to be a next tenant. Uh, if you buy that, you know, buy a deal and you got Starbucks in the in the building. If you own that over a 20-year period, let's say, at some point you're probably going to need to retenant that property. I mean, there's a pretty good chance in the, the next 20 years, Starbucks is going to decide, you know what, we don't want to be in this particular location, or. It's hard to imagine today in 2020, but in 2040, maybe Starbucks doesn't even exist anymore. Maybe they went bankrupt in 2030, I don't, I don't know. Uh, so you gotta always be, I think the astute investors again are thinking, you know, who's, who's gonna be there next and planning ahead in that regard. And again, looking at the quality of the real estate, looking at the rent being paid and figuring out, is there gonna be an exit strategy in that regard if I need to do it?
0: Definitely, awesome. That's great information, really um all right so i guess in the in the case where you decide you want to buy a a single tenant at least investment property how do you go about in analyzing it and that's kind of what where you where you come into play but but in reality it's what 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 considerations do you have to take as you're looking to to figure out what price to offer for a particular single tenant at least uh building
1: yeah and the pricing is gonna to a large degree depend on the comps i mean if you're buying a Again, a Starbucks is an example. Uh, if it's a you know, newer construction Starbucks, it's going to trade within a fairly finite range of cap rate within you know where other Starbucks deals are trading. Uh, so if, you know, if Starbucks are trading, let's say at a five cap and you decide, yeah, I'd love to buy a Starbucks, but I want to buy it at a seven cap. You're not going to buy a new Starbucks deal at a seven cap. You might be able to find one with two years left on the lease and buy that at a seven cap, but that's a different type of an investment. I think it's just, to me, it's looking, I would say kind of a, a macro to micro approach. And by that, I mean, you're talk, you're starting way up in the sky and you're kind of looking down and looking at a lot of different aspects of the deal, whether that's the quality of the real estate, which again, you know, macro to micro, you're talking, you know, what state am I located in? What city am I then located in? Then what town, where am I in each of those cities? Am I in a hard corner or off corner? Is it a lit intersection? What's the visibility look like? So really, kind of starting high up and then getting further and further down, and you know, getting into the weeds in the deal. And then you know, same sort of approach, looking at the tenant. Um, you know, if it's a Taco Bell, you probably you know maybe you have Taco Bell credit, you know, corporate on the lease. Maybe it's a franchisee. So if it's a franchisee, you know, just because the sign says Taco Bell, you know, what's my franchisee look like? What's their financial strength? Um, you know, how much cash do they have on the books? What's their balance sheet look like? What are the store sales at this particular location? So it's looking at all those sort of aspects that, you know, the quality of the real estate, the quality of the tenant, how long a lease term do I have? What's the rent being paid relative to market? Am I above or below market? Do the store sales support the rental rate that they're paying? There's a lot of aspects to it that, you know, frankly, we see a lot of investors just don't dig quite that deep into it. And, you know, sometimes they'll make mistakes. I mean, if you just overlook some aspects of it
0: yeah and i i i value that advice a lot because it, again it's not a cookie cutter type of no. deal i mean it no really, like starbucks is so many there's so many, is, yeah, there's so many I mean, variables
1: it's not a starbucks i mean i mean they are but yeah, you know, one starbucks deal is not going to be the same as a starbucks eight miles away much less a thousand miles away um and yeah you know, again it, it varies based on lease term rental rate there's a lot of aspects to it beyond i want to buy a starbucks Exactly
0: and, and just because you buy a Starbucks like you said, it's not necessarily a corporate you know it may be a fran- maybe a franchisee. I don't know exactly how that works, especially in Starbucks, but it could very well be a franchisee in certain other investments.
1: Correct. I mean Starbucks actually they are all corporate but all, okay, right. yeah. I mean if you look at um, yeah, a lot of the QSRs are, like I said Taco Bell, I mean it's just because the, the, the pylon sign in front of the sign on the building says Taco Bell. You know, that's not the same as the Taco Bell that's eight miles down the street. That, that unit down the street might be corporate credit, long-term lease, whereas the one you're buying is a three-unit franchisee. That's not the same animal. Um, you're really buying a kind of a, a mom-and-pop operator that happens to own a couple of other Taco Bells. So you got to look at that very differently than the one down the street that's owned by, by corporate Taco Bell uh, and has you know hundreds and hundreds of units and a balance sheet, a billion dollar net worth company behind it. So, yeah, you you got to look at it in that regard. Definitely. No. And that,
0: that kind of leads us into our next question, which was related to the, what are some of the common pitfalls uh, to avoid during the acquisition of a triple net investment property, which kind of plays to that?
1: Yeah, I think doing your, doing your homework. I mean, really, again, like we talked about just, you know, getting beyond the superficial where it's not just I'm buying a Taco Bell, but you're looking at the the tenant financials, uh, what are the store sales? Uh, again, what are their unit levels? How much How much debt do they carry? Particularly nowadays, I mean, the operators that did well through COVID were those operators that were flush with cash and weren't carrying too much debt. So you wanna see, yeah, you know, were they expanding aggressively and therefore they've got a lot of debt on their books or are they a company that's got you know significant cash reserves? So they're gonna be able to make it through a recession when it invariably in, in happens. Um, I think that'd be one thing. Then looking at the quality of the real estate, you know, that could be the access, the visibility, you know, how, you know, what's the, you know, how easy is it to get into the property? They have stacking lanes that are good for drive-through traffic. If there's no drive-through, could you add a drive-through if you ever need to? I think just looking at all the different aspects of the the particular deal, the particular location, and not just look at it superficially. Well, I need to spend two and a half million dollars. Here's a Starbucks for two and a half million dollars. It's a good fit. Uh, so, I think just really digging deeper into the deal.
0: Definitely. No, that's some great advice. So, I guess, what are some of the strategies that you've seen investors take in order to maximize the returns from these types of investments? Um, I mean, obviously, if you were to buy it outright, maybe you get a certain return versus, you know, right. maybe to implementing some other strategies. So, maybe if you could elaborate a little bit on that, that'd be great. Yeah.
1: No, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, right now, I mean, interest rates are at or near, you know, historic lows. So, we're certainly selling a lot of deals on a cash basis still but there are you know if you're wanting looking to get you know increase improve your returns potentially you maybe do look at putting some leverage putting some debt on the property uh maybe it's even modest whether it's 50 ish percent six you know you can generally you can get up to about 60 maybe 70 percent nowadays uh but again you're looking at interest rates high twos low to mid threes and if you're buying that at a you know five and a half six six and a half cap rate you've got a nice spread there between the debt return and the return on the property. So that's one way to improve your, your cash and cash return. Another one we don't see too many people take advantage of is, you know, accelerated depreciation It's cost segregation. Uh, there's things you can do on not just single tenant, but all commercial properties. Uh, go get a cost segregation study. And instead of, ex, you, know, ex, you know, depreciating your property on a 27 and a half for residential or 39 year basis for commercial, you're able to accelerate that rapidly, whether it's either an all in year one, year five, you know, over five years, 10 year, 15 year period. Uh, so you can really improve your initial returns, particularly if you're a quote unquote, real estate professional from the IRS code standpoint. Um, that'd be one way is to improve your returns is from just from a tax standpoint, doing some things tax wise that can help legally juice your returns, particularly in those first few years. Definitely.
0: And, and, and this is more of a side question. How, how have banks been responding? Um, do, do they typically respond to these type of investments? Is it usually with a it depends, obviously? with every Yeah, year. I'd
1: say exactly. It depends. Depends on the, the sector, you know, how much lease term they are, how strong is the tenant, how strong is the borrower in reality, too. But no, I mean, it's been an interesting year. I mean, mid-March till you know, about May 1st, give or take, banks really were taking a very hands-off approach to, to real estate in general, but I mean, they wouldn't touch a restaurant deal whether that was fast food, sit down, there's kind of nixing re- restaurant sector. Um, and now, you know, starting about May, give or take, uh, Q- I think folks realize the QSR sector, the quick service restaurant, fast food, is gonna actually be okay and has actually done quite well through COVID. Uh, so banks are very, you know, look favorably on the fast food sector. But things aren't easy right now. Uh, I mean, some lenders are being pretty cautious on putting money out at the moment. They're gonna again, they're gonna underwrite the borrower really carefully. Look at the look at the tenant, look at the real estate, and just and probably gonna be lower leverage than we could have gotten you know this time a year ago. So there's there's money out there, but banks are banks are being careful. And certainly some sectors, casual dining, sit down dining, is tough to finance right now. Fitness center is gonna be tough to finance right now. Um, so certainly, you know, some areas are easier than others.
0: Sure. and I mean, COVID's affected, uh, a lot of different, every, yeah, Almost everything. <laughs> I feel like every week we're talking about that, but yeah, I've definitely yeah. dealt, I've had some investment deals that we've been working on and, and, you know, banks are underwriting very carefully. They've increased their vacancy requirements, uh, where they, yep. And I, Brian's actually on the call. Uh, he, we had a deal that we were working on trying to get with him and uh, the U S bank and yeah, their, un, their vacancy requirements, you know, went through the roof. So.
1: Yeah. And I'm seeing, I mean, some lenders I'm seeing, you know, if they say they want to finance, but then when you get back the term sheet or it's, it's not really market quote unquote, you can kind of see they don't really want to finance in reality. Uh So now I mean, lenders are being careful right now. i mean, particularly with what we're seeing with the spikes in cases I and mean, that's something we have to keep an eye on. I mean, that's, that's certainly something the lenders are watching and yeah, it may even depend on where you're located. I mean, some markets are more likely to shut down than others. Again, if you're in a sector that is at risk of being shut down, like again, casual dining, fitness centers, uh, whereas a fast food chain, you know, we kind of saw last time, the last time we had these shutdowns that they were still able to survive and and even thrive. So, you know, lenders are certainly going to look at that, you know, kind of keep an eye out what's happening in the, in the world with COVID these next few months until we get to the hopefully the finish line around mid-year next year where we've got, you know, we're kind of putting it behind us with the vaccine.
0: Definitely. No, I 100% agree. So awesome. So now that we've kind of addressed the COVID situation, one of the things I always ask all our guests is talk about some of the resources uh, that you find extremely valuable as far as learning about really this, this type of industry. So do you have any the maybe top podcasts, books, other resources about expanding your knowledge on these types of investments?
1: Yeah, I like, I mean, first of all, I mean, I go on LinkedIn a lot, so I spend a good bit of time on there, following a lot of people that are really active in the business, whether that's other brokers, or also just writers, um, like Danny Klein with um, uh, QSR Magazine, if I'm thinking correctly, Jonathan Mays with Restaurant Business Magazine, so uh, Nation's Restaurant News, so you know, National Real Estate Investor, Globe Street, so I, I'm really big on different publications, uh, just subscribing to their daily emails and, again, tracking a lot of folks, again, like Jonathan Mays, like Danny Klein, who are really immersed in the business from a publication, from a media standpoint, um, that are, you know, very active and involved covering the industry. So, I find that really, really informative um, as well.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And you also have a, a series, uh, Wolf Bites, that I've I've used right. to do a few of, of them beforehand and there's some pretty informative, you had some pretty cool guests on so.
1: No, I appreciate it. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are just active like, like me and you that are just active in the business. So we're kind of in the weeds and you know, seeing what's happening day to day and you know, folks that are sharing that like you're doing on, on LinkedIn and you know, these, these, these Zoom calls and Facebook. So that's a great way just to stay on top of things, just what's happening in the industry from individuals that are active in on a daily basis.
0: Oh yeah, I know. And, and the cool thing, I mean, obviously COVID's has affected a lot of our in-person meetings, but with, with this platform, I mean, we've had people tune in from, you know, we've had a regular from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We've had people come in from all these different parts of the country. So it's kind of interesting to see how that this whole pandemic has opened up the communication lines across the country. And I mean, again, you, we can learn from you and you're in Florida and, you know, sure. we're, we're primarily in Louisville, located in Louisville. I think Alan actually is tuning in. I want to say from New York. Okay. uh so it's you, you you're kind of all over the place so it's it's been really interesting uh you know obviously there's been some restrictions on on the in-person side but from a virtual standpoint it's been uh i think it's been right. really
1: yeah and we've even seen that with investors that are i mean we're uh you know, I mean, right now it is harder to travel uh but we see that with investors that buy you know globally if not at least nationally where you know a lot of our deals we sell are all over the country and it's not uncommon at all that we'll sell a property in Texas, the buyer's coming from California or a property in Florida, the buyer's coming out of New York or, you know, just buyers are coming from anywhere in the country and buying all over the country. So it's not, it used to be, you know, the old adage when we first got in the business was, you know, if you've got a property on the market, you know, stand on the rooftop to a 360 and your buyer's probably within, you know, within your your line of sight. I mean, that's not at all the case anymore. I mean, buyers are coming from, yeah, again, literally all over the world but certainly all over the country and there's just no way to know where picking on these single tenant deals the buyers could come from from anywhere literally that's awesome all right well that's kind of oh alan actually moved to dallas that's
0: awesome <laughs> so he's in dallas right now but awesome well but i guess that's kind of all the preset questions we had for you uh, right now does anyone on the call uh if you guys have any questions feel free to chime in i'm also going to be checking facebook live right now to see if anyone has any other questions so feel free to chime in yeah i got one <clears throat> yeah go ahead man you got it uh, yeah do you see many barry do you see many syndications with um single tenant triple net with like a starbucks or a wendy's or a taco bell or anything like that
1: yeah, we do see some of that. Absolutely, Tyler. Um, like uh, one one name comes to mind, Aaron Zucker. On you know, I I know personally, and uh, and also through he's very active on LinkedIn. But he he does syndication of these single tenant deals. There's definitely groups that that do those. I mean, I was looking at a LA Fitness here the last day or two that um, you know, is, is syndicated single tenant deals. So yeah, definitely we do see um, some of that. I would say. More than not, the investors we're working with are private parties that are buying you know the whole 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 property. Uh, but no, we we de- you definitely do see some syndication and there's opportunities there. Uh, also institutional buyers. but yes, yeah, certainly whether that's something you're looking at investing in fractionally or you know being yeah. the kind of the GP and you know, finding limited partners, uh, there's certainly that opportunity, yes.
0: I have I have a question because um, I know and again this is mainly just me researching you a little bit. Uh, can you kind of explain the concept of a sale and leaseback? Because I feel like that's something that you know business owners, in particular, if they've they've owned property for a little while um, and they own maybe multiple locations, that can give them an opportunity to kind of help with an expansion. So could you kind of explain that concept?
1: Exactly, and like I like I said, it's just very capital intensive to own a lot of real estate. So we do see. Groups that, you know, own some locations, whether they just were originally planning to hold or they just had, had to acquire them, uh, that then do, you know, what, a sale leaseback, which is, you know, exactly what it describes. You, you sell the property and then you sign a long-term lease to stay in the property. Uh, so we work with a number of franchisees, some national companies as well, to run their sale leaseback programs. And it's a great way to monetize the real estate where if they own, you know, we've, we worked recently with a, you know, about a 7,500 unit operator of Taco Bell and KFC we sold, I think it was you know, 15, 16 of their locations. And it was a great way for them to access millions of dollars of capital to then go redeploy into adding new units or expanding their, you know, expanding their operations, whatever it might be or paying down debt. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons that an operator may look to do sale leaseback. lease back. And again, it's just all about monetizing the real estate where, I mean, if you own it, maybe you owned it uh, all cash you could certainly go finance it but you're, you're probably 50 or 60% loan to value from a tax standpoint, it's more favorable from a sales standpoint. So it's definitely, you know, it can be some tax and equity s- reasons to, to sell the real estate. But now we see a lot of that. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of sale, leaseback you know, deals on the market at, all the time for the, for the reasons we talk about. Awesome.
0: So I just got a question from Alan on the call. Uh, he's asking, where do you see the CRE opportunities in 2021? Um, so I'm, I'm sure you can talk to the single tenant side of things.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on what. This is where it's it's different for everybody. What, what does opportunity mean? Um, is it to you know, get great yields, great buys? I think that's just, it's different. There's no one answer for anybody. If you're looking, I think we're going to see a lot of activity continue on the fast food sector side and the discount side where dollar stores will stay very strong, particularly dollar general. A lot of investors really like those deals. They're safe and secure. The fast food chains, again, I think are going to be very much in favor in 2021, uh, particularly the first half of the year. I mean, we're going to, we're going to still be living in a COVID world at least for probably the first half of 2021. So, you know, we may have to be dealing with some closures and uh, where we work from home and otherwise. So, you know, casual dining figures to probably still struggle in 21 uh, at least again, the first half of the year and fitness as well. Uh, So that's what I would expect to see as far as again, opportunities. I think that just kind of depends on what you're, what you're looking for um, in that regard. Awesome. That makes sense.
0: All right. So do you, any of you on the Zoom call, have any questions also, we have people live on Facebook as well. If you guys have some questions, feel free to chime in. We have a couple people on Facebook as well. I guess in the meantime, do you want to share maybe, do you, do you, do you have a particular concept or something you wanted to talk about that you maybe wish I would have asked you
1: about? Do you have anything in particular? Oh, man. Very, um, I'm trying to think. you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no, I think it's just a matter of just, you know, if you're buying, you know, doing doing your homework, uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of properties out there and just seeing the market. I mean, the market, I will say this, the market on the single tenant side, one thing we haven't talked about yet, it's kind of where it's at now has been Really, really strong through 2020. Uh, it's a sector that has done very well. Uh, we had you know a bit of a slowdown in you know mid March till you know again probably about May one, where the world just kind of nobody was sure what was going on. There's a lot of fear in the marketplace. The debt market pretty well shut down. Like buyers got you know that were selling, were canceling contracts, so therefore you didn't have as many 1031 buyers. So, but after that, the market has held up really, really well. I mean, we'll end up selling. You know, pretty close to as many deals in 2020 as we did in 2019, 2018, 2017. And those were really, really good years. Uh, so transaction volume has held up and cap rates have held up really well for the most part. I mean, casual dining, you've had some impact, negative impact on returns and cap rates, you know, fitness center or something like that. But, you know, largely, you know, cap rates have held up really well. If anything, you know, some of the fast food chains, uh, the dollar stores like Dollar General, you know, those cap rates have actually even compressed. They're lower today than they were a year ago, pre-COVID. So the market itself is is really very, very strong. Um, And I think that's going to continue. We've actually had a lot of investors looking, trying to get execute deals by year end uh, out of concern with the the risk of tax increases, which I, I think is overstated for next year. I don't think we're going to see any real tax changes or tax overhaul that, impact real estate negatively in 2021. Uh, as far as where Biden goes, you know, particularly once COVID's behind us in 2022, 23, 24, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, there has been some speculation that he does raise the capital gains rates as it relates to real estate, particularly the single tenant deals. There's been you know, some talk he's he put out there during the campaign and the election that he might look to eliminate 1031 exchanges. Uh, that would certainly have a, a significant impact in the real estate sector particularly on these single tenant deals uh if that does come to fruition i don't i don't think it will i definitely don't believe it will in 2021 uh so that's just those are a couple things we're keeping an eye on certainly though
0: that's that's some great insights so awesome well anyone else in the zoom call have any other questions i definitely don't want to miss you guys out awesome well, Barry, thanks again. I mean, I, oh, no. I feel like I grilled you the whole time, but I really no, do appreciate all. All the I enjoy insights.
1: the conversation.
0: Yeah, no, no. And it's one of those things that, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely learning a lot more about it at as well. Like I mean, I've been in the business for about a year and a half now, so still, still relatively new. Uh, I, I came from a software background, so it's, it's something that, uh, um, it's, it's really interesting. I just, I, I'm def- definitely super glad that, that I was able to connect with you and bring you on to talk about these different, uh,
1: no, happy, uh, happy to do so. I appreciate the time. And we do see, I mean, one thing I'll throw out there, because I know you said, again, you're in the multifamily side also. We do see where a lot of these buyers are folks that are getting out of multifamily, out of more management-intensive real estate investments. And you know, it's a lot of times it's like later stages of life where maybe they're just looking to slow down, don't want to work quite as many hours and being quite management-intensive. And they get to the stage where it's you know, kind of the equivalent, real estate equivalent of retiring, where- you transition out of an 80 unit apartment building or an industrial facility, and you, you buy some of these single tenant deals that are then, if all goes well, just, you know, passive income mailbox money. Um, and you, you know, can kind of slow down your life. And like I said, sit on the beach, sip a cocktail and have the money coming in each month.
0: Yeah. And then you have, the, you have, the, you own the real estate. And I mean, I'm, I'm assuming with in your case, you help them make sure that, you know, the piece of real estate is still going to be have value, even if they were to vacate, and that's,
1: that's the critical part of it. Exactly that. Not buying something that if they vacate, I mean, ideal scenario, you buy something such that if the tenant ever vacated, you look at it and say, great, that's a, that's a phenomenal opportunity for me. I'm going to be able to actually add value. I'm okay. I'm going to lose cash flow for a period of time while I'm repositioning it because it does take time. It's not, it's not an apartment building where your tenant vacates, you put a for, for rent sign and you get somebody in there the next month. Uh, it could take 6, 12, 18, 24 months to reposition a property, but ideally it's a scenario where maybe you go from a $20 rent to a $35 rent and you've actually improved your position. You've added value to the property as opposed to the opposite where you buy that Starbucks at a $55 a foot rent, and if they ever vacate, your replacement may be at $25 a foot. That's not a, that's not a good scenario. Definitely.
0: Cool. Well, thanks again, Barry, for tuning Absolutely. in. Thanks to everyone on Facebook Live uh, for tuning in as well and everyone here on Zoom. And again, I'll, I will be recording this and posting it to YouTube as well. As far as getting in contact with you, Barry, if anyone had any questions or maybe they want to look at single net tenant net lease opportunities in, in around the country, how can they reach out to you?
1: Yeah, great way. I mean, I am active on LinkedIn, can certainly find me there just under my name, Barry Wolf. I'm with Marcus and Millichap. And my phone number, happy to share it, is 954- 245-3493 you can give me a call anytime and you're more than happy to talk to anybody awesome and i'll share
0: all this information in the show notes for the youtube channel as well so thanks. again it'll be easy so much
1: to get great talk. talking with you guys
0: yeah definitely thanks again barry it was really cool Thank seeing you. you guys and thanks everyone who tuned in thanks well. Barry. thanks for hosting See you guys okay.